um, uh, about Ecuador and, and even that question, where's home, I, I guess, for, for a while? Uh, you know, is home Ecuador, is home here? And uh, in fact, Evie got tired of people asking her, where does home feel like? So, you know, <laughs> so, but that's a pretty common thing, I guess, that um, people who are, have spent a long time in one country, uh, spent a long time uh, not so long in another, they, they, they sort of long, they're, they're in one place, but they long to be somewhere else. And that's a little bit like what we've got here in uh, these final chapters of Genesis. Jacob and his family are in Egypt. They're surviving the famine. Life's good here. They've got all that they need, but it's not home. It's not where God had promised that their future would lie. Uh, so which way are they going to go? Are they, are they going to settle down and forget about their real home? Are they going to get wrapped up in the pleasures of Egypt? Are they going to look to Egypt as the answer to all their problems? Or are they going to look to the promised land? Uh, that God is keeping his promises? Are they going to long for their true home? Now, that's uh, where these chapters have something to teach us because all of us uh, are living as strangers in this world. Uh, it's a temporary home, if you like. We're enjoying where we are. God wants us to enjoy the home we're, we're in. But we should also long to go home, to our eternal home, for the new heavens and the new earth uh, longing for the inheritance God's promised us, learning to trust God's promises uh, when there'll be an end to pain and crying and hurt and sin. We're picking it up in chapter 42, so jump back there. Uh, Joseph, you'll remember, is in charge of the famine relief program. Uh, God's raised him up to save Egypt, but not just Egypt, to save Jacob and the rest of his family because they're back in Canaan and the famine is just as bad there. Jacob hears there's grain in Egypt he sends off his ten oldest sons to buy the grain. But notice that he keeps Benjamin, his youngest, at home. Benjamin's the new favourite. Now that John, uh, Joseph is gone, he's uh, Rachel's other son and he doesn't want to risk him. The brothers arrive in Egypt, Egypt verse 6. They meet Joseph. They bow down to him, just like Joseph's dream all those years before. Joseph recognises them, but they don't recognise him. Twenty years have passed. What's Joseph going to do? He could respond with revenge. Uh, his brothers may have acted like that if uh, the situation was reversed. Uh, they're at his mercy. But what he wants to do is to test them, to see what they've learned over all the years. Uh, so he keeps his identity secret. Uh, first up, first part of the test, verse 9, he accuses them of being spies and he refuses to believe them until they bring Benjamin back as well. One of them must stay in prison in Egypt. The rest can go home, but they're to fetch Benjamin and bring him back. One will remain in prison, just the way Joseph himself suffered in prison. Now, at this point, the brothers realise maybe that they're getting what they deserve, what, what they deserve. And it, it actually sounds, from verse 21, like they feel, they've been feeling guilty the whole time. Their conscience has been at them for that whole 20 years. Uh, look at verse 21. They said to, one another, said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was. Now, they're thinking back 20 years when they threw him into the well. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. All that time... They hadn't forgotten. Their, their conscience wouldn't let it go. 
And, and conscience can be like that, can't it? Joseph's listening in, pretending he can't understand their language, uh, and he's marking them on this test of conscience. And he's overcome with emotion. And he turns away and weeps. And we're going to be seeing, we're going to be seeing plenty more of uh, Joseph's tears in these chapters. Uh, then, perhaps because Reuben was the one who stood up for him all those years ago, Jacob sends the second eldest, Simeon, off to prison. He's the hostage. Uh, and he'll stay there until they return with Benjamin. And they head off back to Canaan with sacks full of grain. They get home, poor old Jacob finds out what's happened and he's distraught. Verse 36, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph's no more, now Simeon's no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything's against me. Uh, well, in reply, Reuben makes a very noble but stupid offer. Uh, you may put both my sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Benjamin, that is. Entrust him to my care, I'll bring him back. Jacob won't be convinced. My son will not go down there with you. His brother's dead. He's the only one left, except for the other ten sons, but the only one of his uh, favourite wife, Rachel. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. And so Simeon stays stuck in jail. We don't know how long, but the food is all gone, and at that point, Jacob's desperate again. Into chapter 43, he says, go back to Egypt, buy us a little more food. He's put it off as long as he can, but he knows what's coming. Verse 3, Judah says, we can't go back without Benjamin. And Judah gives a personal guarantee for Benjamin's safety. Verse 8, send the boy along with me and we'll go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. We'll have food. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Which is interesting, isn't it, when you consider what the guilt he'd felt about Joseph. It's another noble gesture, but it would have been nice if he'd actually stood up for Joseph like that all those years ago. Remember, it was Judah who had come up with the, the plan of selling him into slavery. It seems like Jude has learned a thing or two. Uh, and he's seen what the loss of Joseph has done to Jacob. And poor old heartbroken Jacob re reluctantly agrees. Verse 14. May God grant you mercy and bring Simeon and Benjamin back safely. The brothers make it down to Egypt. Verse 26. Joseph comes in and they bow down to him. Joseph, uh, Joseph asks about how his how dad is going and, and then he sees Benjamin and look at what he says verse 29 his own mother's son he asked is this your youngest brother the one you told me about and he said God be gracious to you my son deeply moved at the sight of his brother Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep he, he went into his private room and wept there partly for joy I guess but, but also the sadness of the years he'd missed out on. This still won't be the last time he weeps, by the way. It's a bit of a theme. He comes back, he's dried his eyes, it's time for lunch. Uh, but Joseph has another test for the brothers, this time a test of jealousy. Uh, he seats all the brothers according to age, which astonishes the brothers. How, how does he know who's the oldest and who's the youngest? 
And then when the food's served, Benjamin, who's way down at the end of the table, he gets five times as much. Like He gets a bucket and the rest of them just get their plate. And so the question Joseph's posing is, are they still jealous of Benjamin? Any chance they're going to do to Benjamin what they did to me all those years ago? I can imagine a few puzzled looks between the older brothers with their small bread and butter plates of food and Benjamin down there struggling to finish his huge bucket full of lunch. Uh, The trap's been set. Now's the time to spring it. Into chapter 44, uh, Joseph fills up their sacks with grain again, but into Benjamin's sack he hides his own personal silver cup. Uh, The brothers are chased down along the road by Joseph's servants. The brothers are sure they've done nothing wrong. They come up with another rash promise. If any of your servants, that's us, are found to have the cup, he'll die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. It's a foolish promise, but luckily Joseph's not interested in holding them to that promise. Uh, His servant is only interested in the guilty one. Uh, Very well then, he said, verse 10, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave, the rest of you will be free from blame. This is another part of the test. They're given the option, the opportunity to leave and abandon Benjamin. Are they going to do it? The bags are searched. Finally, the cup's found in Benjamin's sack. But look at the brothers' reaction. They passed the test. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Because they know that if they head back to their father without Benjamin, it's going to kill Jacob. So it seems like they're learning something. There's some hope yet for the brothers. They all get back to Joseph. He gives them another chance to abandon Benjamin. Only the man, verse 17, only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go in peace. But it does seem like they've learned the lesson. Judah speaks up on behalf of them all. He explains the whole situation, how Jacob will die if he loses another son. Uh, Verse 27, and he concludes by offering himself in place of Benjamin. At last, they're thinking of others, these brothers. Uh, The rectification, the reformation of the brothers is complete. We now come to the reunion. It seems, I think, that Joseph has wanted to forgive them, but he's been waiting to check whether they're repentant yet, whether they're sorry before he offers his forgiveness. Uh, So it seems as if for Joseph, witnessing that sacrifice of of Judah willing to stand in the place of Benjamin, that's enough to to really, he just loses it completely uh, into chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself uh, before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Just the the, the palace gossip got back to Pharaoh. And then he reveals himself to his brothers. Uh, This one they thought was dead has, has actually been alive. And they can't believe it. But a millisecond after their astonishment, it's replaced with terror. But they realise who it is who's still alive and what they've done to him. They're scared of his revenge, this second most powerful man in Egypt. And yet Jacob, uh, Joseph reassures them. 
And it's a wonderful perspective on everything that he's gone through. 20 years of ups and downs. Verse 4, he says, chapter 45, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. For the next five, there'll be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. The brothers had blamed themselves, and and yet God had used their jealousy, used their evil intent and their evil actions to save many people, to preserve them, to preserve that family as a remnant, to fulfil his promises. Jacob goes about organising this preserving, this saving, uh, this rescue. He, he sends the brothers back uh, to Canaan to fetch Jacob and their family and their possessions. Bring them back to Egypt where there'll be plenty for everyone. That's what chapters 46 and 47 describe. We'll, we'll jump over those today other than to mention one little interaction when Jacob meets Pharaoh. Chapter 47 verse 9. This head of the family meets the head of Egypt. Jacob describes his life And as he does, I don't think he's complaining. He's just stating a fact. Pharaoh asks how old he is. And in verse 9, Jacob replies, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. Few and difficult. And they don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Now, I wouldn't describe 130 years as few. That's pretty good, isn't it? These days, I don't think anyone lives to 130 But as Jacob looks back on his life, uh, it's short. He's just a baby compared to his father's and there have been tough years as well. He's been through a lot, mostly due to his own trickery and deceit, few and difficult. But just compare, for example, how his father Isaac, is, uh, how his life is described. Genesis 35 says Isaac lived 180 years Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. Old and full of years. Or listen to how his father, Abraham, his life is summed up. Genesis 25. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people full of years, and yet Jacob's years have been few and difficult. And so it makes it much easier for Jacob to long for home when his years have been few and difficult. We see Jacob longing for home in chapters 48 to 50. Things are great in Egypt. Life's easy for Jacob, probably the best it's ever been. Food is plentiful. Would have been easy for Jacob and his family just to settle down, intermingle, and pretty much become Egyptian. And yet that's not where God's future lies, where his promise lies, because the promised land is Canaan. Jacob wants to make sure that his own sons remember God's promise, especially Joseph. I think because his temptation to remain in Egypt would have been stronger than the other brothers. And so at the end of chapter 47, Jacob's 175 now, just... Quickly fast forward 30 odd years. 
And as Jacob's life draws to an end in Egypt, he summons Joseph and he makes him promise to bury him with his fathers back in the land. And Joseph says, sure. And then into chapter 48, Jacob is on his deathbed. Joseph gets summoned again. This time he brings his two little sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob reminds them all about God's promise, a promise that's centred in Canaan. Uh, Verse 3 of of chapter 48, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and there he blessed me and said, I'm going to make you fruitful, increase your numbers, make you a community of peoples and I'll give this land, this land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession to your descendants. And then he takes his two grandsons and he proceeds to give them a blessing. And there's a blessing too for the other the other brothers, the other ten. Some of them are words of prophecy which are good and blessing and others show that God is judging them for their actions. But the focus of all of those promises is not in Egypt. It's in the promised land. That's where their future will be. And then finally, at the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies, he breathes his last and he's gathered to his people. Once again, Joseph weeps. Let's be honest, he's a bit of a crybaby through these chapters, but he weeps again. His father's embalmed. They take him back to Canaan. He's buried. He's buried with the pomp and the ceremony of an Egyptian royal. And it does seem like Joseph remembers his father's words because as the whole book of Genesis draws to a close, as Joseph's life draws to a close, he makes that same request as his father. Chapter 50, verse 24, he's talking to his brothers, who interestingly enough um, are still living, they're older than him, and he says, verse 24, God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised. And he made them promise to take his bones back there. When they went, Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's where the book ends. He died the second most powerful man in Egypt with, with all the riches and the power and the honour that anyone could dream of. He had everything and yet in spite of that he died with his eyes on a much greater prize, on another place. He, he died trusting God's promise to make his family into a great nation and to give them the land, the land of Canaan, even though he never saw any of it. And I guess that's where it gets relevant for us because Jacob and Joseph are at opposite extremes of life. Jacob, his years are few and difficult. And so for him, the temptation was to just lose hope, uh, despair, to doubt that God would ever come good. I'm not seeing any of it. When's God going to come good? There wasn't much evidence. But then at the other end, you've got Joseph. Joseph had everything without God. His temptation was was to be distracted by the shiny, temporary things around him, to forget where his true treasure, where his real future lay. And I think there are temptations for us like both of those men. Maybe for you at times your life's like Jacob. It's full of frustration and difficulty and God's promise seems impossible and you think, how can I trust that? what? This is, life is terrible here. Uh, it's hard, perhaps, if you're in constant pain to try, keep trusting God. 
Or maybe you're lonely or depressed. Or maybe where you are in life is a result of a series of tragedies or poor decisions that you've made and you're just suffering miserably. It's hard to see how the things in your life are working for good. It's hard to trust God's plan when you just want to sit down and give up. Maybe that's you. Or maybe, on the other hand, your life's a little more like Joseph. Things are going well. You may not be the richest and most successful of all your friends, but you're doing well. And you're enjoying life. And maybe you're hoping for a bit more. You're hoping for that promotion or that good job or that overseas holiday or the top marks. But instead of hoping for that, maybe you should be hoping for your real home, for eternity, for God's reward, uh, to be building treasure in heaven rather than here on earth, putting God's kingdom first rather than your own pleasure and satisfaction. The temptation is to lose sight of the riches of God's promise because you're more interested in this world's riches. So whether you're like Jacob and you need encouragement to push on or, or whether you're like Joseph, and you need to change the object of your hope to leave Egypt behind and fix your eyes on God's promised land, uh, whichever it is, do that. Because our basic identity is not here. Our basic identity is not what we're suffering or what we're enjoying. Our future home is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is not Australia or Ecuador or Portugal. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there. Let's hold on to God's promises. They're worth it. Let's wait for our saviour as we live with him as our Lord now. Let's live as a citizen of heaven, which is our true home. Let's long for that home as we keep trusting God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for uh, this story of Jacob and Joseph. We thank you. Uh, thank you that through it uh, they grew in their understanding and, and so there's hope for us. We pray that you would be teaching us how to be trusting you through the ups and the downs. Uh, Lord, for those of us where things are down at the moment and it's a struggle, uh, help us uh, to keep trusting you, uh, to see your goodness in small things uh, and to, to trust you as faithful. Uh, Lord, for those of us where things are going well, help us not to lose sight of eternity as well. Help us to pursue righteousness rather than to pursue the passing, fading pleasures of this world. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, eternity is sure and you are trustworthy and you are good. Uh, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.